Let me invite you to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Started last week, uh, just uh, three weeks, Lord willing, examining this passage in Colossians 1. Uh, I didn't really give this series a title, but if I did, it would be giving Jesus Christ first place in Christmas. And the intent is to show us uh, from the scriptures the importance of what Christ did uh, in, in his incarnation so that we can actually worship him uh, the way we ought to at Christmas. You know, one of the, uh, we've talked about this before, but there's, there's probably different kinds of Christmases that we recognize uh, in, in this regard. There's sort of a cultural Christmas that uh, people are observing that honestly could, uh, it, you could uh, consider Jesus Christ simply a backdrop for what they're doing. Right? I mean, they, they really are not in any way doing something connected to worship to Jesus. It's just, you know, the, the Christmas season, right? So you've got the decorations, the activities, the parties. It's called Christmas, but basically it's just become a cultural celebration of some sort. It's, it's not really in any way centered on Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's, that's the reality of it. I mean, that's just, I'm not necessarily saying that's a, uh, it just, it is that, right? It, it's, it's, it shouldn't be that for believers, but it is that in our culture. Yeah, I mean, that's just a reality of it. And, and the challenge though is when, when all that has become a part of that celebration, right? Actually, at times, perhaps like once every seven years or so, runs smack dab into Christians worshiping Christ at Christmas, right? Like next week, it's going to be Christmas Sunday, and it's going to be possible that all of our Christmas traditions, the things that have become the ways in which we celebrate Christmas that actually have very little to do with Jesus, right? I mean, it's, we've, we've just got a whole cluster of things we love to do. And they're going to run smack dab into the fact that it's the Lord's Day and it's the day we worship the Lord. We gather to worship Christ every Sunday. And, and actually, if you, if you keep abreast of what's going on, there's uh, a surprising amount of churches that have actually canceled church for next week so people can celebrate Christmas. I'm like, What? See, what, what that is actually is the whole cultural frame of Christmas and everything that people do to celebrate Christmas bumping out Christ. Right? That's, I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. And, and I think we have to at least recognize the ways in which Christmas may actually end up being more about us than about Jesus, right? We, we just sort of press him out to the edge 
Obviously, it's, I mean, I'd say it this way, it's his birthday, so like we're celebrating his birthday, but, but we didn't invite him to the party. And I think we need to make certain that we guard ourselves on that. Now, uh, the reality of it is we're making adjustments because it's Christmas, because we have one obligation, I think, according to the New Testament, and that is to gather on the Lord's Day to worship. The Bible doesn't tell us what time that is. It doesn't actually tell us all the other stuff that has to happen around it. But we do need to meet on the first day of the week to worship the Lord. And so next Sunday, we'll meet at 1030, and we'll worship Christ for Christmas. We'll clear out some space for some of the other things that are happening, and an opportunity for us, I hope, not to marginalize the Lord, but keep him at the center, because that's where he belongs to be. Because, as the text we're looking at says, he's actually supposed to have first place, not just in Christmas, but in everything. Look again at Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read the, uh, the whole passage that we're actually, Lord willing, taking three weeks to work through. But I want us to have it all in context. Start in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He also is head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Last week, we looked at verses 15 to 17 about Christ being the firstborn of all creation, that he is the one who has revealed God to us and ultimately will rule over all things that God uh, has made. And he himself is the maker. This morning, I'd like to just have us look at verse 18. He also is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And I actually want to work sort of backward through the verse, uh, because I think uh, I think that's really sort of the way the logic of the verse runs. The end of the verse is God's purpose, right? God's plan is the glory of his son's rule over all things. Notice in verse 18, the words, so that. All right, so here's what God's purpose is. So that he himself, Jesus, will come to have first place in everything. Uh, first place here means supremacy, to, to have the rule over all things. It points toward the culmination of God's plan. Mentioned that last week, that, that the language here is, is still pointing forward. Right, so it is God's intention that Christ will rule over all things. He'll have first place in everything. We do not currently see the full exercise of this. The writer of Hebrews points that out when, 
when it talks about Christ being crowned with glory and honor yet and says yet we do not yet see him right there's coming a day when the full glory of Christ will be revealed he will rule the world like we sang a little bit ago his his reign will be complete it anticipates it and moves toward it what we need to see in terms of seeing this in relationship to Christmas is that that this actually was the thing that was anticipated from the beginning. God's plan for his creation was for humanity to have the place at the top of that priority and exercise dominion and rule over all of God's creation. I would Back in Genesis, man is made in the image and glory of God and was to exercise dominion over God's creation. And that was not just the order of creation with mankind at the peak of it, but also the mandate that we were called on to exercise dominion on behalf of God over the creation. We, we were to be its rulers, and God intended mankind to be that. One of the uh, one of the evil twists of the reality was when sin came into the world, it was precisely the reversal of that order. God had created man to rule over. In fact, it established the relationship of, of the man and the wife who was the helper with him over the creation. And at the temptation, it was a creature influencing humanity to rebel against the Creator. And by virtue of that, a curse came in and corruption, so that man fell from the glory of God, and the curse came upon the earth. And that corruption has spread to all of humanity and has prevented our rule over the creation. I mean, yes, we're still in many ways exercising dominion, but, but the reality of it is we all know that there is a, a kind of brokenness and power that, that, that rises up against the rule of man over creation. We, we periodically see the absolute devastation of what happens in a creation that's under the curse. And, and what happens because of that. And so uh, God's original plan, broken by man's rebellion, immediately though, what does God begin to do? I mean, right in the very pronouncement of the curse in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God says that there will be a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. There's the promise that a human will begin to take action to destroy the one who had introduced the curse. He would crush the head of the serpent. And then as the scriptures unpack it, there's a promise not only of crushing the head of the serpent, but of a crown that will be placed on a descendant of mankind. Seed of the woman then becomes the seed of Abraham, becomes the serpent that will rise up out of Judah, the son of David, right? the son of God, 
And that promise carries forward so that there will be a human who stands at the head of the race, able to rule over all things, given the crown. And that, that promise progressively expands, right? It's a, a promise given that there will be a scepter of Judah that will rule over Israel, that the government will be upon his shoulders, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that there will rise up out of the city of David a ruler, the Ancient of Days, who will actually, his, his kingdom will extend then to the ends of the earth. So it won't be just a king over Israel. It will be a king over the whole earth. And in fact, Isaiah chapter 11 says that his rule will reverse the effects of the curse. We know the poetry of it, right? The lion will lay down with the lamb. I mean, that's the, 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 the disruption of the harmony and peace within the created order will be reversed when this king rules over all things. So he'll rule over Israel. He'll rule over the nations. He'll rule over everything that has been made. Because that's what God has promised and it anticipated. And in fact, The birth of Jesus Christ included announcements like that, that he was a king, that he would be a light to the nations, that he would bring peace on earth. Now, here's the thing I want to make sure we're understanding, because this is in the context, Colossians 1, of Jesus of Nazareth. We're not just talking about the, the eternal Son of God. We're talking about the Son of God who took to himself a human nature, the one who is the image of the invisible God. Right? Because those two being joined together, when we celebrate Christmas, we're not just celebrating that the Son of God existed eternally. We certainly cannot exclude that, but we're actually celebrating the fact that he became man in order to fulfill all of these prophecies. Everything that was anticipated about him would be brought to, fu- uh, brought to fulfillment in Jesus. And what it helps us see is the wonder of God's plan for humanity. Psalm 8, way back, Psalm 8 talked about God being mindful of the Son of Man and crowning Him with glory and honor and giving Him rule over everything that was made. That's about humans. And Hebrews 2 picks up that language and applies it specifically to Jesus because Jesus is the one who's going to restore the rule that God intended for us. He is the perfect man. He will be the one who is appointed the ruler over all things so that the glory with which God crowned humanity will be restored via a perfect human. So when we see Christmas and we see what God is doing in Jesus Christ, if if I could say it this way, it sounds maybe, maybe a little bit like flowy to say it this way, but we need to see Christmas in its cosmic context, right? The whole big sweeping picture of what God is doing. That there was creation and curse 
But then the crushing of the head of the serpent by a child who would one day wear the crown. That's what Christmas is about. It is individual redemption and hope for sure. But let's not miss the full scale of what God is doing through Christmas. It is so that Jesus will have first place in everything. Everything will be brought under him and made the, the, the footstool for his feet. He will put everything in subjection to himself. That's God's intention in Jesus. And so here we see that purpose laid out at the end of verse 18, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. But let's take a step back in the verse because we need to understand what comes before this purpose statement, and that is that God's plan required the incarnation, that is, the Son becoming man, so that the Son might face and conquer death on behalf of fallen humans. And here's the connection. Notice the, the line right before, so that, right? He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come, right? So, so don't miss the logic of what's going on here, right? He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Well, why is that? So that he will come to have first place in everything. So being the firstborn from the dead is for the purpose of becoming or becoming first place in everything. That they're joined together. So God's plan for the glory of his son ruling over all things required that Jesus die so that he could be the firstborn from the dead. And he couldn't die unless he became human because God can't die. God is eternal. He's immortal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He wasn't given life as God, and he can't end his life as God. But taking to himself a human nature, he actually became alive as a human and could face death as a human and could be raised from the dead as a human. So the connection here in that word required is based on that so, so that. You know, the firstborn from the dead was for the purpose of Christ having first place. Without dying, he would not become first place in everything. He couldn't provide redemption and he wouldn't have restored, he wouldn't be able to restore the creation to what it needed to be. Again, I've already alluded to this, but remember the obstacle here. All right, you go back to creation and then the fall of man and the curse that comes on. And that curse is the curse of death, right? Adam, Adam, in the day you eat, you shall surely die from dust to dust. And so that curse brings death. So the only way that that curse can be crushed, and all I did was talk about crushing the serpent's head, but the only way that that can happen is via death. He's going to take the curse upon himself in order to crush it. The language of Galatians is he became cursed for us. Right? He actually bore it on our behalf. 
He was willing to do that so that he could taste death, in the language of Hebrews 2, for every person. So he can't reign until he has conquered this. And conquering it comes via death, because the obstacle that he must overcome, become the victor of, is death. But also this exaltation, Right, this exaltation that we're talking about is actually brought about by the obedience of the Son. You're in Colossians 1. should just be a couple pages back. Go to Philippians chapter 2, and, and let me remind us of a familiar passage that, that works through this reality. Look at Philippians chapter 2, start in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself or humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice now verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, well, Philippians 2 is giving you sort of the expanded version of what Colossians 1.18 is saying in pretty quick terms. Right? Firstborn of the dead, firstborn from the dead, so that he will have first place in everything. That's the short way of saying he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's happening here. Christ humbled himself to the point of death and by his resurrection has been exalted now to the right hand of God, and God did this because of his obedience. Because of his obedience, right? That's verse 9. Look again at it. For this reason, right? because the Son was obedient to the point of death, for this reason God is highly exalted. And again, I... I, I I keep sort of stepping away from this because I think it can be easy for us uh, to, to be familiar in a way that blinds us to the significance of this. All right, again, this, we're thinking of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. All right? The God of the Bible is a triune God. One God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second person of the triune God, the Logos, God, the Son, exists eternally. He has all the glory of God. Completely perfect with God, worthy of all worship, 
No distinction in terms of any of that. So clearly, Philippians 2 is not speaking of the Son in His eternal deity. Because the Son in His eternal deity cannot be exalted any higher. He's equal with the Father. What Philippians 2 is referring to is the post-incarnation God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, who in his humanity was lowly, born in obscurity, living in humble existence, obedient to the Father to the point of death. This one, following his resurrection, Peter says, has been made both Lord and Christ. He has been exalted and given a name which is above every name, so that now every every response of humans to the true and living God must pass through Jesus. Because he's the one who is the only mediator between God and humans. He has been made both Lord and Christ. He is the one that is purposed in the purpose of God is going to have first place over everything. Everything will be brought in subjection. The last and final enemy that will, will be death itself, 1 Corinthians 15 says. He is going to conquer it all And he will do so because he was willing to enter into humanity, take to himself a nature just like ours, except without sin, live sinlessly, die sacrificially in the place of sinners, and rise from the dead, having defeated it, conquered it, the firstborn from the dead, so that... He will have first place in everything. That everyone will see and acknowledge the glory of Jesus Christ, confess that he is Lord. Every knee will bow to him. That's what this text is about. And so the connection here is the crushing of the head of the serpent is the cross. And so we, we might... Right? We, we might find ourselves like the, like the disciples... And what seemed to have been a constant struggle in, in the Old Testament is they saw this promise of the crushing of the head of the serpent and the ruling over the nations and the Gentiles hoping in him. What they didn't see and understand, apparently, was that that meant he would die. They certainly didn't understand that he would die on a cross because everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. Remember Jesus, even to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, had to say to them, haven't you seen that first of all, the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? Right? They, they, they weren't tying this all together. They wanted to see all the, the victory side but they weren't seeing the sacrifice that would be made by the Messiah to make that possible. And to some degree, therefore, they, like us, 
can have a tendency to minimize, minimize the gap between us and God. Minimize the depth of our sin that requires the death of the Messiah. We like to think that God can sort of just swoop in, lift up the carpet, sweep our sin all away, and then we'll move right on. But the fact is our sin is so great, it requires the death of Christ. He must atone for the sins which we've committed because we can't. The debt is too large for us to pay. Only one who is sinless and perfect like the Savior can atone for those. But in his dying then, In his dying, it might be possible for sin to win unless he conquers death. And that's why the resurrection is the vindication of the Son. It is the declaration that he is the Son of God with power. He is declared to be perfect and that God has fully and completely accepted his offering on behalf of sinners and now he's exalted to the right hand of God. God's plan required this incarnation and sacrifice so that he could become, in the language back in Colossians chapter 1, he could be the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In 118, that word beginning probably has the idea of being the founder, the first fruit, so to speak. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Reuben. A, uh, a, a Jacob's first son, and he's called the beginning of his children, right? He's the, he's the first of them in that regard. The founder, it's used as a source type of language, but also firstborn, the exalted one, that Jesus is going to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, Romans 8.29 says, because he's the first one to actually experience a resurrection. There were people raised from the dead prior to Jesus, but they all died again. I mean, in a technical sense, they were resuscitations. They weren't resurrections, right? Lazarus came forth from the tomb, but one day Lazarus went back into the tomb. Right, Everyone who had been raised from the dead would suffer death again, but Jesus Christ would rise from the dead to never face death again. His was a genuine resurrection to life eternal, endless, never subject to physical death again. And that's what he is the firstborn of that, so that he offers that to others as well. Now notice again in verse 18, because there's a one more step backward we need to take, and that is that God's plan, God's plan for Christ to have first place in everything includes the formation of the church to function as Christ's body. Notice the beginning of verse 18. He also is head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. So he is the head of the body, the church, the 
The purpose and promise is that Christ would have first place in everything. And I said it's still a promise. There's coming a day when Christ will have all of that glory and be exalted in that place and will bring, as I quoted from 1 Corinthians 15, he will defeat every enemy, including the last and final one, which is death. Right, So he will have first place in everything. That will be the case. It is not presently the case in terms of his messiahship and his rule over the creation. But he does have and ought to have first place right now among those who are called his body, the church. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. He is the head of the church, which is his body. The present exaltation of Christ happens among his people. When we confess him as Lord, when we live our lives under his authority, we serve him for his purposes. He has first place among us. I mean, it doesn't take us long to look around at the world around us and see that this world is in rebellion against Jesus Christ. I mean, that that it is broken. That there is not right now the full and complete picture of the rule of Christ over all things. But there is one place where there should be a picture of that. There should be a foretaste of that. And that's as Christ rules over his people. Christ's relationship to creation is detailed in the verses before this, right? He's the one who made it all. He has authority over it all. He he will rule over it all. But the church, right? The church is now Christ and he is the head and we're called to follow him and submit to him. The church by this imagery of the body, is an assembly of those who have been joined to Christ by the Spirit through faith in His person and work. There's clearly a distinction. Back in chapter 4, Paul will talk about those who are inside versus those who are outside. And the, the inside, the church, in the body, are those who are actually joined to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith in the person and work of Christ. They would come to see who he is. He's the eternal son of God who took to himself a human nature. He's sinless, perfection. He's the Lord Christ, who he is and what he's done, that he himself has made atonement for sin and offers salvation to all who will trust in him. When a person sees that, acknowledges that, entrust him or herself to that. They do so by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead. That's what Romans 10, 8, 9, 10, 9 and 10 say. That is, they, they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and they call on his name, confessing him as Lord. They do now what one day all will do. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They now have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and have called on the name of the Lord. And therefore they're joined to Christ 
And because it's a body, they're joined to one another. And there, Christ is to rule as the head. He is the one who is the source of its life and the sovereign, supreme ruler over his people. Now, this reality that we're talking about here, and just a, a little aside on it, because sometimes uh, people trying to put together how the, how the Bible works, right? This this reality of the church, if I put the coming of Christ at his birth here and the coming of Christ to establish his rule over all things, that there's actually what we'd see is a mystery. There was a mystery hidden in the ages past that God would be forming this body, the church of Christ. Clearly, all throughout the Old Testament, there was anticipation that God's salvation would spread beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. I mean, 3.15, it's seed of the woman, right? That's not a Jewish woman there. That's just a woman. So God's salvation would affect all of humanity. Even when it narrowed down to the Hebrew people through the descendant of Abraham, it said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God's intent all along was that salvation would come to all the nations. Right? And that's why all throughout the prophets, they talked about in him, Christ, the Gentiles would hope. So, so there was a plan of God for the Gentiles, but he specifically was working with the nation of Israel. And, and we looked at Daniel few years ago, Daniel chapter 9 prophesied 70 weeks, 69 of which would come up to the point where the Messiah would be cut off. That's 69 of the 70 weeks. There's still a 70th week out there. In between the 69th and 70th week, God unveiled this mystery that both Jews and Gentiles would be included into one new man, the body of Christ. That Christ would be the head of that body and would rule over that body between the first and second comings. And his authority over them would be expressed by his commissioning of them to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Remember what Matthew 28 all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Right? And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. There's a time coming when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on this earth. But until that point, from the time he left until the time he comes back, the body of Christ under the authority of Jesus Christ is supposed to be carrying out the mission of Jesus Christ. That's what he left us here to do. Because he's going to have first place in the church. And one day, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered at the foot of his throne, singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain, because you have purchased us from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. 
And what God is doing now through the church is gathering up a people for the name of Jesus Christ. He's gathering them up to be the bride of Christ, to be presented to him on that day, and then to rule with Christ in that kingdom. That's a mystery, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, that was hidden in generations past, but now is revealed through his apostles and prophets. That you and I have the privilege of being the body of Jesus Christ with him as our head to rule over us. And his body is the instrument through which he is accomplishing this purpose. And it is... It is that purpose being carried out that forms them into assemblies to call on his name, to worship him, to fellowship together, grow in Christ and serve him. So it's not just one day Jesus will have first place. He's he's supposed to have first place right now. Right, The Christian life is not lived under our authority, looking forward to the day when Jesus will reign. The Christian life is lived under the authority of Jesus Christ right now in anticipation of the day when he comes back to reign. We are supposed to be a people that are under the authority of Christ, living out life the way he says to live it right now as his people and for his purposes. And so Paul holds out the glory of Christ in this reality, that he he's the one who came so that he might conquer sin and death, create the church, rule over it, as he's working his purposes out in the world of gathering up a people, calling his sheep to himself. And then one day, at the time of his choosing, the time when God's plan will be brought to full culmination, Christ will return. He'll fulfill the promises to Israel, establish his kingdom, rule over this earth, and be given the glory that he deserves. Because he is the one. He is the son who came. He's the savior for all mankind. He is the one who will rule over everything that is made. So here's the thing. We sit here this morning in anticipation of Christmas. And if Christ is going to have first place in our Christmas, then definitely, without doubt, we have to bow to his lordship. Right, you're just you're just uh, you're just paying lip service to some kind of cultural social Christmas if you're going to celebrate Christmas without having bowed the knee to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Right, and and that's the danger. Jesus anticipated it in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many miracles, cast out demons? And and he says, I will say to them in that day, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. You know what that worker of iniquity, the one who practices lawlessness is? It's, it's, It's pinpointing the problem of somebody claiming a relationship to Jesus while defying his lordship. 
Right? He says, you worker of iniquity, you practice lawlessness. And, and that's the negative way of saying what he said just a couple verses earlier, the one who does the will of my father. Right? If, if you don't care about the will of the father and obedience to the teaching of Jesus, then you're not a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, it's the only simple way to say it. I mean, it's like, it's like, oh yeah, I love Jesus. I just don't care about what he has to say. It's just, that's just empty, hollow and empty. Right? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I mean, the only way you can truly worship Jesus Christ is if you've acknowledged who he is. And if you've acknowledged who he is, then you know that means he has the right to rule over you. He's your redeemer. And when he redeems you, Paul says, you're bought with a price. You're not your own. Right? If you think you are your own, then you don't think Jesus has bought you. Right? It's, it's, it's not, it's not complicated except for when we try to rationalize away our desire to live our own way and still get the benefits of salvation. I want the ticket into heaven, but I want to do my thing. And that's not why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world so he had first place. And you need to call on his name and trust in him and acknowledge him as the only hope of life. I hope you have trusted him as your redeemer, the one who can rescue you from the consequences of sin and give you life eternal. And if you have, then we are to be living our lives as his body, as instruments to be used by him for his glory. If we're going to keep Christ in Christmas, then it needs to be the expression of a worship that is not just adoration. We see how wonderful he is and we adore the Savior, right? And and there's nothing wrong with it. Oh, come let us adore him. But it has to move past that that adoration into a life lived for the glory of our Savior. That we actually want to serve him because we recognize how much he has done for us. That he is worthy of every ounce of our devotion. And that devotion will be expressed to him in a life surrendered to his purposes because he is Lord. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. Father, thank you so much that we can come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and know that we can have life. We can be heard and accepted and received because of Christ. That that because he lives forever, he is able to save completely all who come to you through him. Father, this morning, open the eyes and heart 
of any who has been trusting in self. Perhaps even trusting in religion or or morality or being good or being uh, kind as the way into your presence. Help them to recognize that, that nothing we offer can atone for our sins. That's why Christ had to come. If righteousness was by the law, then Christ was crucified in vain. He offers to us a gift purchased with his own blood. So Lord, open the heart so that trust is laid at the foot of Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, because you've been so kind and gracious, if we've had our sins forgiven, we've been redeemed and brought into your family, stir our hearts with love for Jesus Christ. That he laid down his life for us certainly should call for, uh, from us the willingness to lay our lives down for him, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. So Lord, help us not to get sucked into the self-centeredness of this world around us, but to be captured by the love of Christ so that we live for the one who died for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.